An interesting movement is sweeping the country. It's called the Emergent Church. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Today, you'll hear a critical examination of the Emergent Church by the noted philosopher and theologian, Dr. Norman Geisler. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. Recently, Pat invited Norman Geisler to address the Emergent Church at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part two of that presentation. And by the way, it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. All at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zuckerman presents Dr. Norman Geisler on The Emergent Church. Emergent or emergency. Let me give you basic background of the emergent church movement. The key influence on the movement, which is acknowledged by its leaders, is called postmodernism. Postmodernism is the designation of the philosophy of our day in the postmodern world. And Nietzsche, who died in 1900, is really the father of the movement. Uh, Nietzsche, you remember, said, God is dead. But Nietzsche said, God is dead. Now, when God dies in the culture, objective truth dies. Because you can't have an absolute idea unless you have an absolute mind. If there's no absolute mind, there's no absolute ideas. The death of exclusive truth. Pluralism, a characteristic of postmodernism. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. The death of objective meaning, called conventionalism. What you may mean by it is different than what somebody else may mean by it. The death of thinking, logic, anti-foundationalism. There are no foundational principles of thought that's the basis for all thinking. Thinking is dead. The death of objective interpretation called deconstructionism. There is no one interpretation of the Bible or any book. There is no objective interpretation because there's no objective meaning and no objective meaner. The death of objective values, subjectivism. What's valuable to me may not be valuable to you. Now, here are seven characteristics of postmodernism, most, if not all of which, are adopted by the emergent church movement. The claim of fideism. There are no reasons for what we believe. The refutation. There are good reasons for believing. There are no good reasons for what we believe. Well, if you have good reasons for believing in fideism, then you're not a fideist. If you don't have any good reasons for believing in it, then it's an unreasonable view. And why do you believe in it? The claim of fideism. Knowledge is a luxury beyond our means. Remember the quote, the problem. We have the luxury of knowing that we can't have the luxury of knowing. Well, if you have the luxury of knowing, then knowledge is not a luxury because you already have it. Or Dr. Emergency, there is no rational support for what we believe. Mr. Orthodoxy says, is there any rational support for that belief? Self-destroying arguments. Number four, anti-rationalism, now anti-objectivism, the meaning. Defined, all meaning is culturally relative. There's no fixed meaning. Meaning is not objective. If you took any course in literature, any course in philosophy, in almost any college, secular school in the country, you've encountered this. The claim of conventionalism, which is what this is, that all meaning is conventional or culturally relative, is there is no objective meaning. Self-refutation. It is objectively meaningful to assert 
that there is no objective meaning. All you have to do to a postmodern professor when he <clears throat> teaches postmodernism to you is say, should I understand that the way you meant it, or can I take that to mean anything I want to mean by it? <laughs> Self-refuting. It's objectively meaningful to assert that there is no objective meaning. This is called deconstructionism. What kind of freedom would it be if we couldn't make the Bible mean what we want it to mean? Now, if you can make the Bible mean what you want it to mean, it doesn't mean anything. Because if it can mean everything, it means nothing. Anti-realism, another premise of the postmodern church. There is no objective world that can be known. Rather, the only ultimately valid objectivity of the world is that of a future eschatological world, and the actual universe is the universe as it one day will be. Now, as crazy as that seems, and it is crazy, what's wrong with it? Well, it's saying there is no real world now that can be known. But that's self-destructive. It's saying we know it is really true now, that is true in the real world now, that there is no real world now that can be known. Well, if you really know now that it's true now, then you can know the truth about the real world now. And to say you can only know the future is not realism. It's simply speculation and idealism. Conversation. Because the pulling of ignorance just feels better than the hard truth, I'm sure she would rather be hitting the water. But sometimes we just hit hard reality. It won't move. It's there. And truth is that hard reality that's there that won't move. I don't like the mathematical tables. I hated them every time I made a mistake. I still hate them every time I uh, add up my income and my income tax. I, I hate the mathematical tables. But it's a cold reality that's just there. I don't like the laws of thought. I don't like the laws of thought because they say you shouldn't be inconsistent. You shouldn't be contradictory. The law of non-contradiction. Every time I contradict myself, I hate the law of non-contradiction. But it's there. It's part of reality. Anti-infallibilism. You and I have been taught, and orthodoxy has always believed, East and West, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, whatever, that the Bible is the infallible word of God. Problem. Nothing is infallible in a postmodern world. Anti-infallibilism. Listen to McLaren. Well, I'm wondering if you have an infallible text, but all your interpretations of it are admittedly fallible, then you at least have to always be open to being corrected about your interpretation, right? So the authoritative text is never what I say about the text or even what I understand the text to say, but rather what God means the text to say, right? Only God knows what it means. We can't know what it means. Well, let's state this clearly. My understanding of the text is never the correct one. My understanding of the text is correct in saying that my understanding of the text is never correct. I mean, how could you know that statement is correct? If your understanding of the text is never correct, how would you know that unless you had a correct understanding of the text? It's like the historical relativists say, you can't know history. Well, how would they know? Unless they knew what true history was, they wouldn't be able to say, that's not true, that's not true, that's relative. No one knows what the text means, Miss Dr. Emergency. Mr. Orthodoxy says, how does he know that? 
if he doesn't know what the text means. You'd have to know what it meant before you could say no one knows what it means. You can't know not that unless you know that. Anti-propositionalism. In Christian terms, anti-doctrine. Doctrine is passé. Doctrine is old school. Uh, We're in for experience and relationships. Our understanding of the Christian faith must not remain fixated on propositional approach that views Christian truth as nothing more than the correct doctrine or doctrinal truth. Transformed in this manner into a book of doctrine, the Bible is easily robbed of its dynamic character. Don't study doctrine, don't study theology, because you lose the dynamic character of the Bible. Stanley Grenz. The claim. Our view of the Christian faith must not be fixed on propositional truth or doctrine. What's wrong with that? We must be fixed on the propositional truth that we should not be fixed on propositional truth. That itself is a propositional truth. It's the doctrine that says you shouldn't be interested in doctrine. It's the doctrine that says you can't know doctrine. We're fixed on the propositional truth that we can't be fixed on propositional truth. The claim. Doctrinal truth is not dynamic. I want something that's interpersonal, relational, subjective, and dynamic. Serious misunderstanding. Because they're saying it's a dynamic doctrinal truth of the emergent church that doctrinal truth is not dynamic. Well, if that's a dynamic truth of the emergent church, then doctrinal truth can be dynamic. Let me illustrate. Doctrines are very dynamic. Ideas have consequences. Weaver wrote a book by that title. E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, is simply an idea, isn't it? No, it's not simply an idea. It's a dynamic idea, and it has dynamic consequences. Ideas have consequences. Hitler had some ideas, and they had tragic consequences. We had to weed out as evolution has weeded out, he says in Mein Kampf, 1924, the inferior breeds like Jews and blacks. Tragic consequences, 12 million people later. Ideas have consequences, and doctrine has consequences, and we do not want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Anti-propositionalism, we must avoid making any creedal pronouncements. Isn't that a creedal pronouncement? If that's a creedal pronouncement, you haven't avoided making any creedal pronouncements. Anti-condemnationalism, one of the characteristics of the emergent church is that person after person is denying the existence of hell. Sigmund Freud would have a field day if he would apply his book, The Future of an Illusion, to the people who don't believe in hell. Because he says, anything you wish to be true, but you have no real basis for believing it, is an illusion. Well... They wish it to be true there's no hell, but they have no basis for believing it. More important to me than the hell question, then, is the mission in this world question. I'll tell you what. The mission in this world question is very important, what you should do in this world, why you were put here, and what you should do. But you're only going to live about 80 years on the average, 75, 80 years, and then you're going to live forever. What's more important? What you should do for 70 80 years, or where are you going to be forever? Jesus reconciled all things everywhere. Jesus did not reconcile heaven and hell. To borrow a title from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there's going to be a great divorce between heaven and hell. Hell is full of forgiven people. Hell is not 
full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of people who refuse to be forgiven. Our choice is to live in this new reality or cling to a reality of our own making. So it is a gigantic thing, a giant thing that God is doing here. And not just the forgiveness of individuals, it's the reconciliation of all things. Yes, Bell does not believe in hell. Does that have a ring? The claim of universalism. All persons, all free agents are ultimately going to be saved. Problem. All persons, free agents, will be saved, even those who do not freely choose to be saved. Not possible. Not possible. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When one says, all will be saved, my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say, without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say, with their will, my reason replies, how? If they will not give in. In biblical terms, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You know why there's a hell? Because God is so loving, he won't force anyone against their will. Forced love is rape, not love. Anti-inerrancy. Orthodox Christians have always believed that the Bible is completely true, that it has no errors, that it's God's word and God can't make any mistakes. The emergent people believe incompleteness and error are part of the reality of human beings. Human beings wrote this book. Our listening to God's voice in Scripture does not need to be threatened by scientific research into Holy Scripture. So we find scientific errors, so what? The Bible is revelation because it is the errant witness to and the errant record of the historical revelation of God. It's like a broken record. The old Victrola symbol, you remember? The dog listening to his master's voice. The dog can recognize the master's voice even though the record is cracked and scratched. The Bible is full of errors, but we can still hear the master's voice through it. That is not the orthodox view of Scripture. It's called a neo-orthodox view. McLaren rejects the view that the Bible is the ultimate authority. There are no contradictions in it. And it's absolutely true and without error in all it says. Give up these assertions, assertions and you're on a slippery slope to losing your whole faith. He rejects that. That's the truth. Hardly anyone notices the irony, he said, of resorting to the authority of extra-biblical words and concepts to justify one's belief in the Bible's ultimate authority. Have you ever noticed everybody who tries to defend the inerrancy of the Bible is always appealing to concepts outside of the Bible? Well, let's analyze this. First of all, no human writing is without error. Emergent human writing is without error when it claims that no human writing is without error. If no human writing is without error, then how could we know what the emergent church people are saying in their writings? It would be with error. Maturity. Yay, when I was like you, I never doubted the Bible either, but I outgrew that. You've got to grow out of this belief that the Bible is without error. Well, here's the foundation for believing the Bible has no error. Tell me what's wrong with the logic. God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God, therefore the Bible cannot err. If God Almighty can't err, and he can't, he's all-knowing being, and all-knowing being can't be wrong about anything, and if the Bible is God's word, then tell me how that logic doesn't follow, that the Bible cannot be in error. 
Jesus said, your word is truth. Not has truth, but is truth. The psalmist said, the sum of your word is truth. Paul proclaimed, let God be true and every man a liar, the God who cannot lie. Hebrews said it's impossible for God to lie. Pretty well takes care of the first premise, right? God can't make mistakes. Well, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot make mistakes. Another characteristic of the emergent church movement is they're attacking the doctrine of the Trinity, as does the shack. The shack has a heretical view of the doctrine of the Trinity. Anti-Trinitarianism. I ask him if he believed that the Trinity represented three separate persons who are also one. Response, there are three distinct persons, like three distinct corners on a triangle, but they're not three separate persons, like cutting off the three corners of a triangle or having three triangles. We're not saying that God is three triangles. He's one triangle with three corners, one essence with three persons in it. They don't even understand the doctrine of the Trinity. They're against the venerable doctrine that Christ died for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins, which the Book of Romans teaches in, in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter and the Bible from the Passover lamb right on through. Now listen to this from Steve Chalky, The Lost Message of Jesus, attacking the substitutionary atonement. The fact is that the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Now, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes when he stands before God and tells a loving God who sacrificed his son on our behalf that he was engaged in cosmic child abuse. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. I think it's the very thing that draws people to faith, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That draws people to faith. The Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor later became a Christian. And you know what drew him to Christianity? That Jesus could stay there on the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Deeper than that, however, is that such a construct stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence, think of that, perpetrated by God toward humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to repay evil with evil. What a twisted version of the cross. And look at the verses there. Isaiah 53 was wounded for our transgressions. Mark chapter 10 <clears throat> I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He suffered, 1 Peter, the just for the unjust, he might bring us to God. Anti-substitution. Anti-depravity. The Bible says we're sinners. We're born sinner. And we are sinners by nature and by practice. But some, like Chalky and Thomason, reject depravity. The former said, Jesus believed in original goodness. I don't know what verse that is. He said, we're all sinners. Jesus believed in original goodness. The latter said, it is biblically questionable, extreme, and profoundly unhelpful. Response, all have sinned. There is none that does good, no, not one. All the world is guilty before God. Anti-futurism, they overemphasize the present and neglect the future kingdom. Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. There's a future kingdom coming. Jesus is not finished. 
Sure, he's reigning spiritually in the church and in our hearts today, but he's going to reign in this world. He's going to reign from shore to shore. Anti-capitalism. Does this ring a bell? The emergent church movement are socialists. It has a social gospel, not a spiritual gospel, with social implications. It adopts the agenda of the political left. Tony Jones said on David Chadwick's radio program that he and most of the emergents he knew were voting for the most liberal candidate for president. Ecumenism, or ecumenism. The emergent movement is a broad tent, which includes numerous heresies. It embraces Catholicism, pantheism. Spencer Burke said, I am not sure I believe in God exclusively as a person anymore. I now incorporate a pantheistic view, which basically means that God is in all, alongside my creedal view that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't say God is both personal and not personal. He's either personal or not personal. Here's some emerging problems with the emergent church. Its central claims are all self-defeating. It stands on the pinnacle of its own absolute and relativizes everything else. It's an unorthodox creedal attack on orthodox Christianity. It attacks modernism in the culture, but it's an example of postmodernism in the church. It's an attempt to reach the culture. It capitulates to the culture. In trying to be geared to the times, it's no longer anchored to the rock. It's not an emerging church. It's a submerging church. To take the titles of their book, Here's the problem. It is not the emergent church, but the submergent church. It's not that everything must change, but that nothing essential should change. It's not really a manifesto of hope, but a declaration of disaster. It's not refocusing the faith. The emergent church is distorting the faith. It's not renewing the center. It's rejecting the core, core doctrines. It's not repainting the faith, but repudiating the faith. It's not really a generous orthodoxy, but a dangerous unorthodoxy. It's not the church on the other side, but it's on the other side of the church. It's not a primer on postmodernism. It's a primer on the new modernism. It's not going to produce a new kind of Christian, but a new kind of non-Christian. Mark Driscoll, in his book Confessions of a Reformation Rev, hits the nail right on the head. The emergent church is the latest version of liberalism. The only difference is that the old liberalism accommodated to modernity and the new liberalism accommodates to post-modernity. That's the only difference. Here's the image I found of a submerging church, one that submerged in the sand up in Scandinavia. It inspired me to write a poem. The emergent church is built on sand and will not stand. Christ's church is built on stone and it cannot be overthrown. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are many good works out there evaluating the emergent church. Mortimer Adler's book, Truth in Religion. Don Carson, a becoming conversion with the emergent church. Jason Carlson used to be in the movement and left him. I journey into and out of the emergent church. Kevin DeYoung and Ted Gluck. Why we're not emergent. Mark Driscoll, Confessions of a Reformation Rev. Thomas Howe, Christian Apologetic Journal. Dan Kimball, The Emerging Church. Kevin Rolfe, Here We Stand, a Lutheran attacking it. Scott Smith, Truth and the New Kind of Christian. Our DVD, The Emergent Church, uh, from internationallegacy.org. Of all of those, I believe the best is this one. This book is put out by Moody Press, Two Young Guys, Why We're Not Emergent, by two guys 
who should be, Kevin DeYoung and Ted Gluck. It's the most knowledgeable, balanced, well-written, good critique, well-documented, highly recommended from a very credible press, Moody Press. Here's what they say. Not all emergent beliefs are bad. DeYoung and Gluck summarize it well. They have many good deeds. They want to be relevant. They want to reach out. They want to be authentic. They want to include the marginalized. They want to be kingdom disciples. They want community and life transformation. These are all good. However, emergent Christians need to catch Jesus' broader vision for a church that is intolerant of error, maintains moral boundaries, promotes doctrinal integrity, stands strong in times of trial, remains vibrant in times of prosperity, believes in certain judgment and certain reward, even as it encourages a culture, reach out, loves, and serves. We need a church that reflects the master's vision, one that's deeply theological, deeply ethical, deeply compassionate, and deeply doxological, praising God. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat.